Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. My guest today, and I'm frankly quite excited about this, is Peter Morisi. He's an economist, a columnist, a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland's R.H. Smith School of Business. You will see, as I have found, that Peter Morisi is a man of parts, intriguing, intelligent, and very entertaining. Where does the economy stand today? I've taken a rather dismal view of it, and it'll be a long time before it bounces back, and it won't be a bounce as such. What's your feeling? Well, we're halfway across a bridge, and we don't know whether the other half of the bridge is there, because we are really having a second wave that the Europeans have not had. And so it's starting to cause some closures across the southern states. Uh, and that's very distressing. Uh, if we were not having the second bounce, I would think the economy would continue growing as planned through the end of the year. This has got lots of ramifications, social as well as political. If the economy doesn't come back, a lot of people will be in a dire circumstance because they have no income or because their jobs have evaporated, they're living off either unemployment or government grants. When those stop, the bills will come due, the credit card bills, for example, or the bills uh, from the rent, which has been delayed, or the electric utility, which has been waived temporarily. Uh, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a day when all this, so to speak, hits the fan? Well, the way the Congress is going about things in a piecemeal fashion, and the fact that this is laced in with election year politics, it has me terribly concerned you know, in New Zealand, they just gave everybody a check every month or every week, whatever, a periodic check that they could count on until they killed this thing. Uh, here, we haven't done that. We gave people one boost, uh, generally, and then we had these supplemental unemployment benefits, which paid some people more than they would if they worked, but many people not. Moreover, they end the end of July, and no one knows what's going to happen then. Uh, in that kind of environment, economists will tell you people tend to save the money and sit on it rather than spend it. Then there's the issue of all the people that have gotten rent delays, credit card payment delays, auto loan delays, and so forth. Well, you know, they have to make up those payments sometime. And when they do, that's going to be a terrible drag. And if they don't, well, you know, those are backed up by securities. Remember those mortgage-backed securities from the financial crisis? Oh, indubitably. Well, you know, our, our, a lot of these mortgages and, and auto loans and so forth are eventually packaged the same way. Now, the government's been really careful. They think they've been really smart that the banks aren't on the hook for these things this time. Instead, it's just investors scattered around the country. But who are those investors? A lot of them are uh, insurance companies that'll have to raise rates or find some way to make up the money. Uh, there are people like you and me who may be uh, relying on that income for a retirement and so forth. I mean, there's always somebody in the other end of an IOU. And when the government says, oh, don't pay it, well, that also means someone's not getting paid. And the bill comes due. Correct. But my question is, what happens then? Are we going to see a huge number of personal bankruptcy? And remember, you need some cash on hand to go bankrupt. You don't just stand outside and say, I'm bankrupt, it's over. Well, um, you can do that. After all, the bank can't get any money from you if it can't get any money from you. If you don't have any money in your account, it can't take any money from you. 
Uh, it can put you on the street. Uh, renters have a lot of rights. It's hard to put people out the door. Even homeowners have a lot of rights. You can't be put out the door right away, but sooner or later, you can be put out the door. My feeling is when this settles out, the government's going to think it's done. And it's going to find that it's playing extra innings, that it's going to have to come around one more time to deal with all these postponed bills. Because we didn't take the German approach, which is basically to give people, companies money to keep people on the payroll. But remember, Germany's more of a factory economy. It's easier to do that. It's organized for that purpose. But New Zealand, you know, New Zealand's more like us. They just took the simple route of saying, we're going to give everybody a grant every month and not worry about it. Here we put so many strings on it that we think we're being smart. We think we're keeping rich people from getting the money and only giving it to poor folk. The reality is a lot of people who needed money didn't get it. A lot of people who shouldn't have gotten so much money did. And with those small business loans, goodness gracious, I mean, big law firms who are laying off clerks and associates all over the place, pocketing money, it's not a good thing. It's the future you thought you had is not necessarily the future you got. And that goes for governments too. What is going to happen to the huge debt that the government in the form of deficits is pushing up uh, all the time now? We used to think that there was some terrible punishment in store. You have written that maybe we're going to see inflation. I've talked to other uh, economists who think that inflation has gone a thing of the past. It won't rear its ugly head again. What's your read, well, Peter? Credit crises, high unemployment, inflation, skyrocketing interest rates, negative interest rates. The best way to know that something could happen is when economists say it's impossible. Because then it becomes very possible indeed. It's kind of like the children rushing home to see the stock market closings because the country's in an hysteria. To be serious, we are in a particularly fortuitous situation right now. For many reasons, the dollar is king dollar even more than we ever could have expected in our wildest imagination. The reason is there is no other credible currency on the planet of a large country. The four largest economies that have currencies are the European Union, Japan, China, and us. As the Chinese have now demonstrated in Hong Kong, their word is not worth the back of a $3 bill. As a consequence, nobody's gonna bury their corporate balance sheet, their cash holdings in Chinese Yuan, even if the Chinese make it possible. It's not a convertible currency. It's as good as monopoly money in the long run. The European Union, well, you know, a new political party there in Italy uh, wants to pull the Italians out. One way or another, there's going to be Brexit for real. I mean, the Brits are really going to be out and they'll find their way in the world, probably better than critics say. Uh, and uh, so the euro has a very uncertain future. So the great German economy can't back it up. Uh, the Japan, with a declining population and so forth, doesn't even have a AAA bond rating because it's had its bond rating lowered simply because of its declining population, although it's a very prudently run place. So that leaves the dollar. At the same time, globally, companies are doing business in the dollar more. And people want to invest and save. And with an aging global population, they save more. You have to have some place to put all this cash. So they're putting it in US Treasury securities, which creates a window for us to dump this debt. So we have that. 
And the second thing is, frankly, the Federal Reserve is buying a lot of the debt and printing dollars. But in turn, these, these overseas holders, they want those dollars to hold their wealth. So for the time being, there's a bit of a demand for dollars out there, but it can't last forever. You know, you can't print twice the global GDP. And so when is that time? Does the bell sound? Do we hear it? Do we, does this day arrive, this doomsday, when things begin to come unstuck? Well, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be a very, very wise economist. Now, you can get people on here who'll give you answers, and nobody will remember their answers when the date passes and it doesn't happen. But if you get 100 people on week after week, Llewellyn, one of them will get it right. They'll guess the right date, and then they'll be called the sage of all time. Just don't ask them to predict two catastrophes in a row. There's lots of people out there that have predicted one. But predicting two, it's kind of like throwing darts over your shoulder, you know, to the wall. Mm -hmm. One guy hits it by dumb luck. He's not going to hit it, hit the bullseye twice. Um, economists come in various flavors. There are socialist economists, there are Keynesians, and there are those of the Chicago school. Where do you fit in this uh, uh, array? I try not to align myself. Well, I'm not a socialist, you know that. Oh, I know that. But then again, I'm a great fan of the British uh, health system. And I, I really am. Uh, I well, think so am I, because I've seen it, and I've seen it in my family, and I've had a little experience of it myself. And despite conservatives who say horrible things about it, untrue things, it actually works quite well. And I'm, it's not sure, I'm not sure it would work in the U.S. because of the scaling up to a country of our size, but it does work very well. Well, one of the things to remember about the British health system is it's not a single system. There's a system for Scotland, for Wales, for Northern Ireland, and for England. And likewise, we might not want to have 50 systems here, but we might want to divide the country up into appropriate regions to do it. Uh, federalism being what it is, we'll probably do it by states anyway. It's not a particularly wise solution to have New York and New Jersey in separate systems, but that would happen. Uh, my feeling is, is that as an economist, I'm an eclectic. I, I've always said from the very, very beginning, they tried to nail me down when I was an assistant professor, bright and sparkly, 25 years old, brand new PhD. I was invited to a tea, so to speak. I, I was teaching at Little Augsburg College in Minneapolis with a leading socialist and his wife at the University of Minnesota. And he said, you know, Peter, where do you stand? He says, I stand on things that work. I like solutions for practical people. He says, why is that? He says, you can afford to be a socialist. You had wealthy parents. I says, your parents went to university and they sent you to university and you've always had money. I says, have you ever had potatoes and eggs because there's nothing else for dinner? He said, no. He says, I have lots of times. So to me, economics should serve ordinary people and it should make the world work for them. That doesn't mean being paternalistic, like say Democrats want to be giving everybody a guaranteed annual income. That's a farce. That's a folly. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But we ought to move towards systems that our culture and our circumstances permit us to make work. The market system we have, if you want to call it that, this hodgepodge of the U.S. healthcare system is absolutely inferior in economic terms. It delivers quality of care on a par with the Germans at 50% higher cost. 
that 50% higher cost makes it illegitimate. It also is coming against all of the other things we've discussed so far in our chat. Uh, the bills for the hospitals are going to burden people. And if you've had the misadventure to have the COVID-19 and survived it, you're going to get astronomical bills from your hospital, which normal people employed in normal jobs will not be able to afford, will just not be able to pay. If it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is very likely to be two weeks on a respirator, I don't know what that costs, but I'd suspect awfully close to half a million dollars. What are we going to say to those people? Do they join the no money, can't pay, uh, uh, de facto bankruptcy? They're, they're, they're right there with people that have credit card balances and debts to landlords and all the rest. In the end, the government's going to have to bail all this out. It's going to have to print some more money to do that. And then we get up against that wall we talked about. We don't know where it is. We're like a, a, a country of... of, of um, of blindfolded men or blindfolded men and women running towards a wall and we never know when we're going to smack into it. Did you have anybody who was very formative in your very distinguished career, which I want to touch on a little bit? Yeah, I had a few professors that were very formative. Uh, and then when I came to Washington, some older investment bankers who came from the old school of considerable integrity you know, when it was a partnership business, they got wealthy, but they didn't get wealthy like Jamie Dimon does. Uh, and they didn't view partnerships as something you sold. Uh, because, you know, when you come from a hard scrabble background, there's a tendency not to um, have the gentlemanly edges you need to have to truly succeed. And, and some of the, the empathy for people who you know, just because this friend of mine, for example, the investment banker came from a prominent family of Quakers that came over on the friendship. In fact, they were in the advance boat that checked out the, the landing site. So, you know, I always used to view him as a bit of, well, you know, you were born on third base and uh, uh, my office mate here who went to school with him, I, one of the guys in the office went to school with him, just bunted you home. And he says, I've had to make all four bases on my own. And he taught me, uh, to also recognize that people from other backgrounds have perspectives and so forth. And he was very influential in, in developing a style and learning to communicate more effectively and learning to make my economics uh, more accessible. So he did, his name was Alexander C. Tomlinson, the third, junior, excuse me, his son was the third. I had a professor named Francis Bethlin who was the displaced Hungarian count who came to America at, oh, at about 19 or 20, not speaking any English and having to get an education and find a way for himself because the Soviets, you know, came through. I had an Indian professor named Prem Gandhi who taught me international economics, and he was a wholly different personality. He had an arranged marriage in, in India and came to America uh, with his wife, a lovely, lovely woman, uh, he had an extraordinarily sound grounding in economic theory. And I had a graduate advisor, my PhD advisor, a man named uh, Franklin Walker, who studied with Alvin Hansen, who was one of the most noted critics and translators of Keynes. He wasn't the Keynesian, and neither am I, and neither am I his sort of reproduction. I remember uh, when I was 11 years old having a schoolmaster who thought it'd be really neat to divide the class up into uh, 
as a newspaper. And my God, I've been at it ever since. He decided I had what it took to be the editor, and I was, and I've been trying to do that work ever since. It is amazing, but the importance of the individual in other lives, not necessarily a teacher, but a mentor, somebody yeah. you can copy, somebody is hugely important. We're gonna have a very big problem in education, aren't we? We've got a generation that may not go to school because of the pandemic. We don't know when it will end. We don't know when schools will open. And you have been very critical, as have I in a different context, of higher education and the machinations of universities. And you have even described university professors, and you are one, a very distinguished one, that you have described them as an aristocracy with all the privileges and abuses that come with aristocracy. Uh, would you like to explain? And will you be able to go back to the university after you've explained? Well, I, I've already been told that many of my colleagues consider some of the things that I've written unhelpful. And so there's not much more damage I can do in that regard. And uh, university and I have an arrangement. They make the rules and I, apply, I pretend to abide by them. Uh, it's kind of like my relationship with the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association. Uh, my feeling is that universities have gotten access to too much free money. Young people borrow money to go to school under the premise that they'll be able to find a great job when they get out. Well, long ago, did American universities stop, A, ensuring that everybody that they graduated was indeed educated. About 40% of our graduates are not, quote, educated very well. And there are far too many of those that are educated well that there are good positions for them. So they end up with a lot of debt they can't pay off. What's more, young people don't do math very well in terms of how much they're going to have to earn to pay off how much they borrow. And so universities have raised tuitions at an astronomical pace to basically do a few things. One of them is have beautiful student unions and football teams and Saturday Splendor. Uh, another is to give uh, a lot of bureaucrats jobs. You know, when I started teaching at University of Maryland, there was something like four or five people in the, in, the, in the business school office. Now, there are legions of people there. And the same applies to the other colleges and, and so forth. But, you know, not to just blame the administrators and the football team, which faculty are inclined to do. When I started teaching, it was pretty well the norm that you taught three or four classes, depending on how productive you are. Today, you teach one or two. And you spend your time going to meetings instead, where you make decisions like, should the, the door on the new outhouse be hung with hinges on the left and the knob on the right, or the hinges on the right and the knob on the left? You'd be surprised at how much time a decision like that can take an assembly of PhDs who feel they have an opinion and they're right about everything. Well, th this, this is true, very low productivity, but it's going to change, isn't it? Because you mentioned in your latest column that you're going to have what, what you call the Caruso effect, stars in teaching. What are we going to see? Are we going to see a few incredible stars with a lot of students following them? Well, I think that universities are increasingly going to be teaching courses online, or what I call blended learning. Some content online, 
some content with direct contact and so forth. But overall, it'll dramatically raise the productivity of the faculty member. The thing is, this content is very expensive to create. But once you create it, you can offer it over and over again. MIT's got a biology class that 130,000 people take every semester. Wow. Correct. Now, clearly, they're not all at MIT. They've got to be someplace. You know, before uh, the phonograph and Caruso, uh, every little town in America, well, not every town of some We'd size. We better explain the Caruso effect. I'm going to do that. Every town, every town of some size had a music hall where the vaudevillians, the four Cohans, would appear, or their, their brethren, and they would have a little opera house. Okay? And they would hear stars of reasonable quality. Uh, then along came Thomas Edison and the phonograph and the motion picture and so forth. And for a dollar or some sum of modest size, you could get a record and hear Caruso over and over again at home. Well, what you had was a few people could entertain many. And they then led those star lives, you know, Arrow Flynn and his yacht off, of, uh, off the California coast and, and so forth. Uh, and the lavish homes, uh, and that will happen in academia. There'll be star professors who offer these basic classes that can reach everywhere, and it'll be silly for universities and counterproductive for them in terms of enrolling students to put Peter Morisi up in front of a camera like this and lecture when something much more sophisticated and multimedia could be produced or rented. You were an early critic of China and trade with China, and you worked in the government as director of the trade office. Um, what led you to have doubts about the Chinese as a partner in trade? Well, the, the, the way they uh, uh, pirated intellectual property very early on, you know, years ago, if you wanted some software, you'd get a CD, or if you wanted to see a movie, you or hear a recording, you'd get a CD. And um, we uh, had a problem that the, they, these things were made in, in objects that looked like a printer today. They'd be a big block, like a small portable refrigerator. I can remember seeing one. So you could put it in a room this size. This is a nine by 12 little office. And uh, we were having a terrible time with piracy with China. And the Chinese government told us that they couldn't locate the people that were producing this pirated software. So our embassy handed them a list of about 18 or 20 places that was doing it. Now, if our embassy could find them, and our embassies, by the way, are crackerjack, jack, top-notch, best Americans. I, I totally agree. I've been, they're very cream of the crop. Our they foreign really service is, is, better, is better than their bosses, no matter who's in office. Uh, they, they said, here it is, here's the list. It caught them, you know, blue in the face, and they had to go shut it down. Now, why didn't they want to shut it down? Well, in those days, those kinds of little angles where you made a lot of money with someone else's technology was controlled by the Chinese army, uh, by the, the princelings, the children of the, of the communi senior Communist Party officials. The whole country was based on, on, on basically corruption and patronage, and, no one, and they didn't keep their word. What's more, their socialist policies were taking off and already start, you could start to see the trade imbalance going uh, because we were dealing with subsidized exports. While we didn't get to be preeminent in 5G by you know, inventing it the way Tim Cook and company invent new iPhones, they get cash from the government you know, on a regular basis. 
Uh, you can't compete with that, nor should you have to compete with that. And then there's the issue of when you trade with people, you make them richer. Should we be making a totalitarian regime richer? I never felt that engaging with the Chinese would cause them to reform. Joe, the old IBM slogan, world trade through, uh, world peace through world trade, didn't apply to the Chinese. And maybe well, it never worked, I don't know. Well, if it does, then you have to explain to me why they're building a blue water Navy to defend those offshore islands, violating their neighbors' sea rights and territorial rights, why they're bullying fishing fleets of neighboring countries, why they're literally occupying China and cracking down on Muslims in their Western provinces in a way that's very reminiscent of concentration camps from the 30s and 40s in Europe. Uh, my feeling is we have to call China for what it is. It's a fascist regime. Peter, when will the Chinese system uh, bring it down or cause it to make huge mistakes? The way Hitler made some huge mistakes in the Second World War to our advantage. Well, it's probably a problem now, but our deep state is a problem as well. And I don't mean that in the Trumpian sense. I mean, look at how difficult we're having getting organized for this uh, you've just the coronavirus. Spoke, you've just spoken very lavishly about the diplomatic corps. Some people speak of them as the deep state, as part of the deep state. Uh, well, I'm not thinking of it in, term, in, in the terms that it's used by the Trump, Trumpian people. I'm thinking more of the, this entrenched system we have in Washington that spends too much of its time in partisan bickering and can't get its act together quickly when necessary, uh, and that is so suspicious of the, of the private sector. You know, we, we like to assume that sooner or later, the Chinese will make a mistake and take away our need to deal with them forcefully. I would like to though ask you something. In reading up on you in your Wikipedia uh, uh, uh -oh. uh, notice, it describes your in your personal information right at the end, all it says is that you favor bow ties, not today because you thought I'd be wearing one and you were correct. But uh, that's all. Tell us something about Peter Marisi person. I'm an avid cyclist. I was out this morning and did 30 miles. Wow. And you I played tennis. On, I gathered that in a hint about your, when you mentioned the Lawn Tennis Association rules. Well, the thing about cycling really is if you just stay on the right-hand side of the road and you don't do it with anybody else, you don't have to make anybody else happy. Think about it. I've had to deal with registrars, deans, department chairmen, editors, talk show hosts, producers and so forth. I need to have some element of my life or where it's just me and the truck drivers. And it takes me back to those days, to my boyhood in that old neighborhood where, you know, you could hold up your fist and say, hey, that's stupid. And the other guy doesn't think you're really being rude. He just thinks you're being expressive. Peter, it's a joy to spend time with you and I hope we can do this again often and soon. Take care, it was a real pleasure. Cheers. That is our show for today. Please be of cheer. Please wear your mask. Please wash your hands. The long winter will pass. Spring will come. We just don't know when. Cheers.